Well, I'll do take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is the penultimate study in 2 Samuel. People are asking me, what are you going to do next? That is a secret. State secret, you find out when it happens. But one thing I will, what will say to this morning is that the plan is, God willing, that somewhere late summer, we're going to start a new series uh, where we'll settle in for a while to look at the book of Isaiah, uh, which is a little book in the Old Testament. And uh, that's, that's where we're going. Between now and then, well, just wait and see. Spotsylvania Courthouse. It means different things to different people here. Certainly, it means for me the memory of a state trooper pulling me over while I was driving through Virginia and uh, trying to argue with me that, in fact, 70 wasn't a suggestion. It was, in fact, the law. Anyway, let's not go down there because I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, so we're quits. But Spotsylvania Courthouse, of course, is fair. A very famous battle was fought during the American Civil War and where the highest-ranking Union casualty was killed. His name, General George Sedgwick. Stupid name, but there you go. (laughs) Sedgwick. If it's your name, I apologize. He was killed by a sniper. Now, the Confederate snipers were about a thousand yards away, uh, and uh, he was organizing his troops, and those who were his aide-de-camps, his officers, they were ducking and diving everywhere when they heard the sound of these snipers. He was giving them a rough time telling them what cowards they were for diving this way and that way. He said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Twice he said it. Twice he gave them a rough time, told them what cowards they were, and said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Seconds later, he was hit and died immediately from the shot. Sometimes your last words are going to last, (laughs) and you'll be embarrassed. Fortunately, you won't be around to know the embarrassment. Sometimes, however, you can... Make sure that your last words are written out beforehand so that the thing you want remembered, you've given thought to it. And one such person was a man called Thomas Hogg. Thomas Hogg was a minister, and uh, he had a church in the northeast of Scotland. A friend of mine once, when he was taking me out for a drive, took me around to see this church uh, where Thomas Hogg was the minister. Uh, You walk through the churchyard with the graves on either side. You walk towards the front door of this little church. And there at the front door of the church, there is a plaque in the memory of Thomas Hogg. Uh, He had asked that he, when he died, would be buried on the threshold of the church. And the plaque placed in, in in a position that everybody coming towards the front door of the church could read the plaque. He died, by the way, in 1692. So the kind of old church. And uh, these are the words that he wanted on his plaque. This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern, the parish where he was a minister. If they bring in one ungodly minister into this church. So there it is. Every time those people went to church... There is their previous minister, 1692. There is their previous minister 
speaking to them from the other side of the grave. Don't bring an ungodly minister onto the pulpit of this church. Well, we, none of the previous ministers have done that yet. Yet, I hasten to add. These were Thomas Hogg's last official words. And when we come to this passage here this morning, we're reading King David's last official words. You can read his last words, his actual last words, in 1 Kings chapter 2. But these are the official ones. This is what he wants for the record, you might say. And here it is, summarizing his blessing on Israel. In many ways, in many ways the, uh, the poem that we've just read in chapter 22 is the prologue to this, his final uh, epilogue as he gives his blessing just like Isaac and Jacob and Moses had before him. But there is also in this blessing a prophecy. He's a pr making a prediction here about the future, and he's talking not about himself, but he's talking about the Messiah King who is to come, and he's talking about the great future that waits for the people of God in the future. So the focus is on the future. And David, as he thinks about the future, as he thinks about his unique role in shaping that future, has enshrined here his last official words for Israel and for us. What are they about? Well, he begins by talking about the establishment of the kingdom by God's decree. Look at those words with me. These are the last words of David the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. Now, do you see how certain David is as he's writing this? He is delivering an oracle. He, re he repeats that so you get the point. An oracle is a divine message. He's reminding us that his words, as we read them, are not the words of any old king. They're not the words of any ordinary believer, they are words which are the words of God. And because they're God's words, they are sure words. So right at the very beginning, he makes that clear. And what he wants you to understand is because they are God's words and they're sure words, those words will stand the test of time. I don't know if you've seen these bumper stickers. You only get them in America because English Christians are too scared to put them in their cars. In case they get all smashed up. But these bumper stickers that say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever seen that thing? Or heard it, perhaps? I hope nobody from this pulpit has actually said that and said it was all right. Because I'm about to tell you that it's not all right. What's not all right about it? Think about it. The middle clause is what's not right about it. God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether anybody believes it or not, in the Bible, that's the way it is. God said it, that settles it. So David is starting and he's making that clear. This is the oracle of David, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. Now we know who's making this claim. This is David. This is David, the son of Jesse. He tells us that. He's reminding us in that introduction of who he really is, where he came from. He's reminding us that he came from Hicksville, Judea, the place that nobody bothered with. It was kind of, you know, no, nowhere's land, nowheresville. And he'd come from there. He came from a family that wasn't a prestigious family. 
It was a, a relatively middle-class family, we might say, but it was nothing special, nothing important in the scheme of things. He is remembering where he came from. He's the humble king right to the very end. Now, we know from reading the book of Samuel that this book is brutally honest about David's life. It's honest about the ambiguities of David's life. There is, there is nothing uncomplicated or straightforward about this man just like if we're honest, there's nothing uncomplicated and straightforward about us. I mean, you know that moment when you're getting to know someone. At the beginning, they seem, oh, very nice, friendly, you know, and, and uh, everything seems to be going very well. And then you get to know them a bit, a bit better, you know. And about three years down the road, you find this person that you thought was just normal. <laughs> it's like you, they're weird. You know, you know that. <laughs> maybe, they do, maybe they're your kind of weird. So the relationship is going to be okay. But, but they're weird anyway because they're complicated. We are complex creatures, all of us. We've read the story of David and we've, we've seen him recklessly sin. We've seen him humbly repent. We've seen him honestly express where he's at in his life. You ever wondered why it is that in the Bible, in the New Testament part of the Bible, there are no biographies like you get in the Old Testament? Why is that? Well, it's because the biographies are in the Old Testament, you see? These biographies that we read are there for us to learn from and to read and to see that these men and women of God in earlier days who trusted in Christ, looking forward the way we do, looking back, who were united to Christ every bit as much as we were, whose, whose sins have been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus every bit as much as ours have, that these men and women of God were real people like us. They did things they shouldn't have done. They were bad, perhaps, people. And yet, they weren't all bad. They were like us. David is bad. He does bad things, but he isn't all bad because he's resting and trusting in what Christ has done for him. This, right at the very end of his life, is another testament to his faith in the Messiah. And isn't it remarkable, isn't it remarkable that God should identify Jesus with David? I mean, you take the book of Ezekiel alone, just two chapters of Ezekiel, chapter 34 and 37, and this is the kind of thing you read there in verse 23. God says this, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Verse 24 of chapter 34, I the Lord will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Or chapter 7, 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall walk in my rules. Or again, verse 25, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be prince forever. Okay, isn't it amazing that God uses David's name to identify Jesus? It's remarkable, isn't it, that God should take a fallen, weak, sinful, but justified man like David and make him the type of the Messiah, the prototype of the Savior. And as you read that, I want you to be encouraged, brothers and sisters, especially when you are very aware of your own fallenness and weakness and sinfulness, that God can take you, and because of your connection to Jesus, can make something of you, and can restore you, and can bless you, and use you in spite of yourself. 
Be encouraged by that as we read this story this morning. But David is writing here about himself, and there's a uniqueness, of course, in his office. He is the king after all. He is the anointed of the God of Jacob, he tells us. And God has done what for him? God has raised him, he says, on high. He's talking about what? He's talking about his kingship. He's saying that kingship in Israel was not an accident of history. It was not the logical progression of political thought at the University of Jerusalem. Kingship was the result of God's resolve. God's resolve to create out of nothing a brand new thing for Israel. A novum, a new thing in Israel. The kingship was the gift of God to Israel, the gift of his sovereign power. And David is saying the kingship of Israel exists by the decree of God alone. The decree of God alone. Now, all, all this does immediately is to tell us that the office of the king had been, had been given divine legitimacy. It reminds enemies as well as friends that ultimate authority comes from God. That's true of David. It's true of every other leader, political or otherwise, in the world. On the other hand, it reminds the king. It puts the king in his place. It reminds the king that all authority comes from God, that the king, the leader, the politician, the CEO is ultimately God's creature, answerable to God. But it also reminds us that God's Christ God's Messiah has been anointed, brought from the obscurity of Bethlehem like David, exalted via the cross, where on the cross he is exalted as the Savior, beyond the cross, and exalted to David's throne, which is the throne of God on high. The king is raised on high by the Lord. He tells us something else. The king is anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you notice how he describes himself? David, in his life, has been identified as a king. We know that. He's also been identified as a priest. He does priestly things. He leads the worship of God. I said at the early service, I'm going to say it now. This is my little rant for the moment in brackets here. This phrase that is used, that is banded about irresponsibly by some people today, this phrase, the worship leader, who brings us into the presence of God, should never be applied to anybody, anybody in the church today, because in Israel's day, David the king, the Messiah, is the worship leader. And in our day, it is David the king, the Messiah, King Jesus, who leads our worship who gathers our praises to God, and the rest of us worship led by Him and by Him alone. By Him alone. But David not only is a priest, he is a prophet. That's what he's saying here. He is the singer of Israel's songs. His songs get into the Bible. Nobody else's does. Actually, there's a lot of them you wouldn't want in the Bible because they, you just want them to disappear. But Israel, he is a singer of Israel's songs. You notice how he goes on. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. David is describing what? He's describing himself as a prophet. He's saying the words that I speak when I'm speaking as a prophet are the words of God. Peter, 
explains this for us in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. That's what David is teaching us now. That's why what he's saying to us right at the very beginning is, you can rely on this great salvation because it is based on, built on God's unchanging and unchangeable word. You see, we're living in a, a period when old certainties are passing away, when many people in our society have no security of employment. They feel no security even in their relationships. And this general mood that is about is underscored by the belief that life itself is a random accident of an unpredictable evolutionary process. Add to that the vagaries of economics and politics and the ever-present reality of sickness and death, and you have a recipe for universal angst. And that grips people. And as Christians, we have absolutely no advice or help to give people when it comes to politics or economics or food and drink and clothing and shelter and peace in our time. But we do have this to say. We are able to have certainty about the kingdom of God in Christ. His kingdom shall not fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. The establishment of the kingdom is by God's decree. Then secondly in, this, in the passage, David is the king and the sweet singer of Israel says that the kingdom is marked by God's righteousness. Listen to this. Here's what the Spirit says through him. The God of Israel has spoken. I take that to be the Father. The rock of Israel has said to me, I take that to be the Lord Jesus. Paul takes it to be the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. He is the rock that followed Israel through the desert. The Spirit of the Lord has given him these words. So here is the Holy Trinity all combining together in this great word that David is giving to us. And he's giving us a word about the king who's to come. And he says two things. This king that's coming, this anointed one who's coming, righteousness will be the work of the king. Righteousness will be the work of the king. Do you notice how he puts it? Two things marked by righteousness and the fear of the Lord. Now, that's remarkable. Because if you look at the record of the successors of David in Jerusalem, and you can read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you get an idea of these people. The majority of them, righteousness and the fear of the Lord, are not features of these people. Most of them, some of them really badly, like Rehoboam and Je Je Jehoiakim, are kings that ignored matters of righteousness, and they certainly did not have the fear of the Lord before their eyes. Somebody like Josiah, he, he gets a fairly good record. But none of them really are like this. He's talking about the king who is to come. He's talking about the Messiah, the greater David, the ultimate, the unique, the antitype to all the prototypes. And he's saying one of the hallmarks of the way he reigns is he will reign in righteousness. He will do what is right, what is just. 
in the way he treats people, in the way in which he welcomes people, in the way he says to people, take my yoke upon you. That is, let my authority rest on you, but my authority will not crush you. He won't be like King George III, who used his authority to crush his colonial subjects. You know all about that. You should all know all about that. You should read a bit of your own history and you'll know all about that. He was a bad king, wasn't he? Because he was imposing his authority harshly on his subjects. This king will not do that. He will rule in righteousness. Because coming under his authority will mean perfect freedom. Under the authority of King Jesus, we become not less human, we become more human. We become what we were made to be. We find our freedom in Him. We're released to be what we were made to be. Righteousness is the work of the King, and righteousness is the mark, the nature, the character of the King. Do you see? He, the King, dawns on them like morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Here is David at his lyrical best. David, the poet, who also knows it, that poet. And he is emphasizing what? Well, he's doing stuff that's done. You find it in one of the royal Psalms 72. Uh, they, may they fear you while the sun endures. May the he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound until the moon be no more. That's Psalm 72. What's he talking about? Well, he's saying this, the king, just by being who he is, is a source of life to his people. He brings life. Life derives from him. He's the king who brings morning. He brings the new day. He brings us out of darkness into light. Brings us from death into life. He is the light of the world. He brings light. He is light. But more than that, it's saying this about the king. He brings beauty. He brings liveliness. He brings energy. He brings warmth. He brings everything that is attractive. The king in all his beauty without a veil between. This is what the king brings. Anyone who knows him discovers that in knowing him they have found the most beautiful thing there is to find. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I shall not gaze at glory, but, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he gives me, but on his pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. He sees the beauty of the King. And secondly, or thirdly rather, the kingdom is not only established by God's decree and marked by righteousness, but it is secured by God's covenant. In that last segment, we find a reference to the most enduring and long-lasting promise in Israel, the covenant promise to 
to Abraham, Does not my house stand so with God? Why? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. In other words, says David, everything to do with your personal and eternal happiness, everything that has to do with your pardon from sin, everything that has to do with your avoiding final judgment, everything that has to do with your personal peace and eternal happiness, everything that has to do with eternal life, everything is based on the promise God made once to a king in that little bit of real estate in Palestine called David. The Almighty God, who in all eternity conspired together within the Holy Trinity to create a world and to make a creature and to select and elect from those creatures those who would be the object of their eternal love and devise the way in which they would be converted and saved and the circumstances of their birth and their life and their upbringing and the influences that would be brought to bear upon them that would ultimately bring them by the power of the Spirit into their everlasting kingdom. That God, that God took that covenant and brought it to this man and gave these words to this man and said, My promise to you, David, in spite of all your weakness, in spite of all your sin, in spite of your failure, my promise will stand secure. And your salvation and mine rest on that promise. We hear these words from Psalm 89 that I began the service with. My steadfast love, my chesed, my covenant love will I keep for him, David, forever. I will establish his, David's, offspring, Jesus, forever. I will not remove from him, David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I will not lie to David. His offspring, Jesus, shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun shall last. It's based on his covenant. Isaiah says about the covenant with David, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you forever, for the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my hesed, my covenant, steadfast love, shall not depart from you. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love for David. For David. I look at David's life. You look at David's life. The things that shocked you. The things that raised questions in your mind. But David's life, who in spite of all of that, casts himself on the mercy of God, trusts and relies and receives and rests upon Jesus the Savior for his salvation as he does here. And you realize that David's righteousness is Christ's righteousness. That David's standing with God is all based on his being covered as you and I are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. But not everyone 
Not everyone that recognizes God's king. Do you notice those words in verse 6? There are these others, worthless men, worthless fellows, he calls them, godless people, he calls them, who are thrown away, utterly consumed by fire, whose judgment is just. Who are these people? Well, he tells us these are people who lift their weapons. Their weapons may be words or their weapons may be real weapons. But they lift their weapons and they shake their angry fists against the Lord's anointed. And they mock his laws and they resist his will and they reject his authority and they seek his harm. And they will be what? Utterly consumed. Perhaps you think, this is all very Old Testament. Well, of course it is. It's right there. We want to be in the loving New Testament. We really want you to get into the loving New Testament. Let me tell you, in the Old Testament, you have crowds of slain on the battlefields. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the multitudes of the damned in hell. What you see on the fields of battle in the Old Testament is a kind of salutary reminder that all of us are under the curse of God and all of us have the sentence of death and all of us will die. But it's Jesus who opens our eyes to the spiritual reality when he says the Son of Man will send his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all that do evil and will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what makes the difference? What makes the difference is your attitude and reaction to the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's King. That's what makes the difference. So there are other religions and they have their gods, their idols. Islam and Confucianism and Buddhism. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. They all have their own gods, but their own gods are idols. They're not the God of the Bible. They are not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other God than that God. If you cannot come to God through Jesus Christ, you're not coming to God. You're coming to an figment of your imagination. I wish it were otherwise, but that's the way the Bible will not allow me to get beyond those boundaries. That's what Scripture says. That's what Jesus says. John Newton wrote a poem about this. Let me read it to you. He says this, what think you of Christ is the test to try both your state, that is your position before God, and your scheme, that is the way you're thinking about God. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him, Jesus. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed towards you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. Some take him a teacher to be, a man or an angel at most, 
But these have no feelings like me and know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, nor on his protection rely, unless I am sure he is God. Some call him a savior in word and mix their own works with the plan and hope that his help will afford after they have done all that they can. If doings prove rather too light, a little they admit they may fail, they purpose to make up full weight by adding some Christ to the scale. Some call him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cling to the world and its joys. Like Judas, the Savior they kiss, and while they salute him, betray. Ah, what will this profession like this avail on that terrible day? If asked, what of Jesus I think? Though still my best thoughts are but poor, I'd say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. What do you think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? Covenants always bring promises and threats. And David, as he nears the end of his life, is telling us that his security, his confidence, his absolute certainty rests entirely on the covenant that God has made with his people. He recognizes that if he's ever going to appear before God, he must appear before God in a righteousness that is not his own, a righteousness that is extra outside of himself, outside of us, an alien righteousness, a right standing given to us freely by the grace of God that clothes us and enables us to stand and look upon God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we too, like David, may look away from ourselves and look to him, Jesus, our Savior, our friend. We pray that we would rest in him and in resting on him find the confidence to come boldly to you, our dear Father, in his name. This is what we pray. Amen.